0: Really glad you're here this morning, and if you're new and you don't have a clue of what Michael was talking about with the uh, groundbreaking, um, we're getting ready to build a new building out on East Saginaw Highway. and uh, I talked to people in the last service who actually went there thinking that we were still going to be there for the groundbreaking, um, and, and uh, people who were new didn't know, so they went out there as well and um, ended up coming over here for the services. So if you'd gone there today or if you go by there this afternoon, you're going to see an image on the screen that will help you understand what's popping up there at the property as uh, dozers are arriving, right? That's great. Pretty cool. Um, The land balancing equipment would be the first thing that will start, those dozers and earth scrapers, they'll begin moving earth. So people have been asking, what's the plan then since we had to change plans for this weekend with the condition of the soil out there. Well, we know that next weekend obviously is Memorial Day weekend and we can't schedule a groundbreaking then. So here's what we've been talking about doing. We're so close to the start of construction and and once these guys start peeling the soil off, it's really gonna become a mud pie out there. So uh, what we're gonna try and do is the day that they actually start construction, whether that's a Tuesday morning or a Thursday morning, we don't know yet. We're gonna give everybody a heads up and anybody that can come and join us uh, for our opening prayer time that morning, maybe they're not in school at that point or can get out of work for an hour. And if you can't make it, we're going to live stream it so that everybody can be part of it and watch it too. So in some way you'll be able to be part of it and we'll capture it on video and we'll play it that weekend. But we want to celebrate in what God's doing because it is absolutely amazing and really looking forward to keeping updates going everybody's direction the reason I'm going with Matthew 14 this morning, maybe you already looked at the notes and you, and you saw where we're going. If you have your Bible, by the way, go ahead and take a look there. Maybe it's on your phone or you got a hard copy. Um, the reason we're going there is because this particular story has a real celebratory element to it, and it also talks about God being with us through difficult times when we're looking to follow his purposes and his plan. So I really felt like God steered me in this direction. I heard from many people over the course of this morning who really felt like that was for them. God, God chose to have me teach on Matthew 14 because of what they're going through. and Maybe that's you today or you've got somebody in your life who needs to hear this. So take out the notes, write down notes. Maybe you can share it with a friend yourself. Let's uh, pray first and we're going to jump right into the text. Father, we come before you this morning recognizing that you're worthy of all the praise we can bring your direction. There's no extent that we could go to that would be too much. So we do thank you for the breath that's in our very lungs because it is yours. You created our lungs and you created the air that we breathe. So you are great and you're great for what you've done among us. And we want to be reminded of that again this morning as we look at your word. So teach us now, Father. We pray that you would teach us through the working of the Holy Spirit who's present. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You look on the screen or maybe in your Bible, Matthew 14, and it says in verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. Well, he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. If you're familiar with this story at all, you know what's coming and you understand the background, but here's some of the things that are emerging out of this particular story. Jesus has just fed thousands of people. And by that, I do mean literally, he provided for them bread and fish. And Scripture records there were 5,000 men present besides women and children. Most scholars looking at this say that probably there's somewhere between 20 and 25,000 people that were sitting on that beach that day getting food from Jesus. Well, because of what he did was so fantastic, the people immediately wanted to take and make him king. And so Jesus knew what was going on in their thought process, and he needed to separate his disciples away from this raucous crowd. So he tells them to get in a boat and set sail and head out for Capernaum. And he's gonna stay and dismiss the crowd. So he does that very thing. So to prevent them from making king, making him king, we're told that he withdraws because it's not his time to be king. He is king, right? New hope? He's king. He's king of kings, but it's not yet his time, and they don't have the privilege of crowning him, and so Jesus has to withdraw. He knows their thoughts. So we're told in verse 22, he sends them to the other side, which is the city of Capernaum. That's Peter's hometown. That's where Peter lived. That's where his fishing base was from. And many of these disciples made their living at the sea. They were fishermen, so they knew this region really well. Well, where they're at is about 12 miles away from Capernaum. So they just have to cut across the northern part of the Sea of Galilee on a straight line as the crow flies 10 to 12 miles. Shouldn't take them very long. They've made this trip many, many times. And so they know exactly where they're headed. However, if you've been out at sea at night in a storm, you understand why there's some reservation on their part because the winds are starting to pick up. We're told in verse 23, he went up on the mountainside to pray. He needed some alone time. I love this particular image of Jesus sitting on a mountainside, nothing distracting, and he's just being quiet with the Father in the wilderness. If you think back to just a few years before this, when Jesus had just arrived on the scene in a public way, we're told one of the first things that happened is that Satan came to him and brought temptations before him. Jesus endured 40 days in the wilderness and then Satan came and just brought all kinds of temptations and one of those was a massive temptation. If you bow down to me, I will bring all the power, all the glories, all the riches of this world before you. Just bow down to me and the world's kingdoms will be yours. But right after that we're told that because Jesus didn't yield to any of that, that Satan left him for a more opportune time. I wonder if this moment is one of those more opportune times when Satan came and brought another temptation, a crowd that wants to make him king, thousands of people who are cheering him. Let's give him the kingdom. Could that be the other temptation of Satan? I don't know, but I know that's spiritual warfare, and that's incredibly draining. All these people want a piece of him, All speculation aside, obviously that's speculation, we find him quietly sitting before the Father praying, and by this time, it's the second evening. In the Bible, we find in history that there were what they called two evenings. From 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock was the first evening, and that's when people received their meals, their supper time. Second evening was 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock, so you had to know which evening they were talking about. In the first evening, Jesus has just fed thousands of people. They've been well-fed, and they've already had this period of time. Now we find Jesus in the second evening by himself up on the mountainside, and I suspect quietly praying for the disciples as part of his time for these 12, because as we learn from the story, Jesus has his eye focused on them. I want to show you a verse that's become especially significant to me. And probably precious would be the right word, and I think you might see it this way, although perhaps not at first. I want you to look on the screen at Mark six forty-eight, and we're told very simply Jesus is seeing them, and he sees them straining at the oars, and he sees them straining at the oars because the wind is against them. So check this, church. He has his eye on them. In the storm that he sent them into. God sent them into a storm and he's watching them in the middle of the storm. This is a really precious verse and I'm gonna show you why in just a few minutes. So verse 24, the story goes on, but the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves for the wind was contrary. So soon after they set out, this violent wind comes up according to scripture. John records that they are 25 to 30 stadia off land. A stadia is an eighth of a mile. We thank the Romans for the word stadium. It's actually a Greek word, stadia, and it means an eighth of a mile. They're 25 to 30 stadia away from shore. So they're out in the middle of the sea. John records it this way, John 6:19, when they had rowed about three or four miles. So this is rowing. This isn't with a sail. Now the normal trip across the northern end, like I told you, 10 to 12 miles, the, the boat couldn't have traveled more than one to two miles off the shoreline normally, but these guys are out in the middle of the sea, which means that contrary winds coming out of the northwest, and it's pushing them further and further and further out into the deeper and the darker and the more dangerous water. Waves are bigger and it's really, according to scripture, battering the boat. A sail would be of no use in this setting. And their only movement whatsoever is rowing, and they have been at it for hours, according to Mark, desperately straining at these oars. Perhaps the worst part when you're in a setting like that is not just the circumstance, but the reality for them is that they've always had Jesus with them up till now, but He's not in the boat. He's not with them. So possibly these guys who hung out with Jesus all the time are now thinking he knows about the storm because he's on the mountainside, he can see us, but he can't get to us. There's there's no way to help us. Just be really sure when you're reading this story and when you're going through hard times, you understand Jesus knows your situation. He knows their situation. They're in a storm because God sent them there. And I want you to check this closely. It's not because they're out of God's will. They're going through a storm and they're still in God's will. God's the one that put them there. They're not doing something wrong, they're doing something right, it's just really hard times. Verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, He came to them walking on the sea. The first century, night was divided into four watches. Six to nine o'clock was the first, nine to midnight was the second watch. Midnight to three in the morning was the third watch, and of course, the fourth watch would be three until six in the morning, which ended at dawn. Jesus comes walking to them in the fourth watch. So that means the disciples have been out rowing against this storm for nine-plus hours. I've done a lot of rowing before. I've done a lot of paddling with a canoe. I've never done that for nine hours, let alone in a storm these guys have to be absolutely exhausted. And if you're the one in the storm, wouldn't you have to say in a moment like this, Jesus waits a really long time before he comes out there. You've been in that setting where you feel like, God, you're really taking a long time to change my circumstances. Man, I'm waiting a long time, God, for you to come. Have you ever noticed, church, that God is never early? All right? He's not by our clock. And he's never late by his clock. He's never early. He's never late. He does everything according to his perfect plan. So he's never early, certainly not by our clock. He often does not do things in the time that we think he should and in the way that we think he should. He typically waits until your boat is a long way from land. When you've exhausted all of your human capacity... You have no more strength left, and your ability seems to be evaporating. See, testing or maturing in Christ, it happens best when God can take the props out from underneath you. And when God removes the props, you've got nothing else to lean onto. So in his servant, sovereign purposes, <laughs> i got too many Ps going on. In his sovereign purposes, God allows the disciples to reach the extremity of their need. I've gone through a lot of years as a Christian, a lot of years in ministry, occupational ministry, pondered these passages a long time, and I have finally kind of arrived at the reason why I believe that God does what he does in these settings when he waits and waits and waits until we seem to be at the breaking point. And it's because he knows us. It's evidence that he knows us. He knows us so well that he knows every single detail, every single hair of our head. And he knows what it takes to put us in the position by which we will receive the most good and the ultimate glory for his kingdom. David reminds us of that. David writes this psalm about, I can't go anyplace to get away from God. Look with me on the screen. Psalm 139, 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, he's speaking figuratively of hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. There's no place you can go that God isn't aware and able to reach you. But in the trauma of a long, dark night, We can forget, can't we? We can absolutely forget. And it appears that the 12 in this setting forgot. They forgot about the power and the capacity. And they're leaning more into fear than they are into faith. And I'm not throwing stones at them because I've been in settings like this. Here's what I've arrived at with these guys. They're showing no confidence whatsoever that the love of God is as relevant in the storm as it is in the calm god's always the same he's no change in him right he's the same yesterday today and forever so there's no change in him so he's just as relevant in the storm as he is in the calm what they seem to know is danger and all they feel is fear so i want this mark 6:48 verse to be a really huge comfort to you when you see this statement Seeing them straining at the oars in Mark 6.48 is talking specifically about the reality that God's got his eye on them. And he sent them there. And it's a storm. And yet we're told Jesus doesn't forget his own. So stop to think this through with me just from a human standpoint. We know there's no way physically possible that a human eye... Could see something four miles away, let alone in the dark, in a storm, out at sea. So what are we seeing here? What's going on? When we understand the way this is written, we'd have to say, I would be really impressed if even with modern technology, we could spot a ship at sea four miles away in the dark in a storm. Here's what we're seeing. We're seeing that God's vision is not as our vision. We think we're invisible to Him when we're going through hard times, or when we're taking steps on His behalf, or when we're struggling in some way. We think God can't see us. His vision is not as our vision. He knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly where these guys are. He knows exactly what they're going through. Proverbs remind us in chapter 15, verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Verse 26 continues the story, the disciples back in the boat. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Do you know why Jesus needs to tell them, do not be afraid? Because they're afraid, right? They're terrified, in the Greek language, it captures it. There's phobos going on. There's much fear. So when he walks up to them, they're not thinking, wow, Jesus is here. We're about to get rescued. No, that's not what they're thinking. They're not thinking they're about to get help. For this ghost to them to be even that close is enough to freak them out. So the disciples see him walking. Now, I just need to rabbit trail with you for a minute. Twelve men all see the exact same thing. I've heard over the years individuals try and reason away what's going on here, a lot of attempts at doing that. So here's a mild rabbit trail. Not sure it's a rabbit trail if I'm telling you it's a rabbit trail, but it's a rabbit trail, okay. Many individuals when they read this would say, "Um, no, here what's going on, Mark, is these guys are really tired. They're physically exhausted, so mentally they think they're seeing something that they're not seeing. Their mind's just playing tricks on them. Okay. First, to acknowledge that, to even say that, is acknowledging that what's recorded here is an actual event. To acknowledge this is actually saying, okay, these are individuals who are really there. They're eyewitnesses, but maybe they didn't see what they think they're seeing. Okay? Second reason, It is quite impossible for 12 individuals to hallucinate the exact same image at the same time, right? So they're not imagining the same thing at the same time. Third, here's the biggest one, none of those counter-arguments explain how in the world did Jesus get in the boat then? Because history records he left them on the shore. He stayed on the shore, they went out, yet the next morning he's found in the city of Capernaum with the disciples as they beached the boat. None of those things explain that. So here's what we've got going on. I told you, it's a short rabbit trail. There's either one of two choices. Either all of the disciples conspired to lie to all of history, or it happened exactly as it is written here. I know where I land. How about you? You know where you land on that issue? Verse 27 says, they scream out in fear. They're like schoolgirls. A lot of anxiousness going on here. Dr. Warren Wiersbe reading this story. And he captured this thought. I wanted you to see his quote Fear always blinds the eyes to the presence of the Lord. It's pretty good. It's right on. You got something in your life that's a bigger fear issue than God's presence. Fear is going to drown out God's presence every single time. But watch God's nature here, church, because God's nature is to calm your hearts many times without even changing the environment. How does he do that? We're told that the Bible tells us that there's a peace that passes all of understanding. Notice Jesus' chosen words. It's me. I'm here. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. See, with a word, just one word from God, he stills the storm that's raging in the heart. Without ever changing the circumstances outside them, the storm is still going on. But he's saying, "Don't be afraid, because I'm right here in the midst of this." Now, we know that God didn't have to walk on water to save them, but doing so, He gave this an incredible reminder, and He did the same thing for you and I. I think this is a really big one. You and I will never ever find ourselves in a place that Jesus Christ cannot find us. Need to hear that again? Jerry's the only one said, "Amen." You and I will never find ourselves in a place where Jesus can't find us. God, yeah, did well. Great. He just will not leave us alone. There is no storm so severe to keep him from you. So that means the night is never so black that you're beyond the Father's reach. Great truth in this story. Verse 28. Verse Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat. I wonder how many else here would do that. I've asked myself that question. Would I do that? I mean, it's one thing to read it, but it's another thing to be in the boat, in the storm, in the night, and say, I want to get out of the boat. No one understood storms better than Peter on the Sea of Galilee. This guy's a professional fisherman, and he's no fool. Basic survival instincts would have all the warning flags going off. I've got professional fishermen in my family, and I know these guys would never get out of the boat just because of boldness. What you're looking at here is not brashness. Look very closely at the statement in verse 28. Command me to come to you. What did the crowd just try and do on the shoreline? Jesus fed 25,000 people and they immediately want to make him king. King. We want to install him as king. Matthew's the only one to capture this detail about Peter. All the other gospels don't record it. They end the storm with Jesus getting in the boat, but they don't capture Peter stepping out of the boat. Matthew records something very specific here. He uses a Greek language when he talks about Jesus commanding him, and he writes it this way. The particular word command, it's got something going on of the throne room of a sovereign. So if you're a subject and you come before the king or you're a servant of the king, the first thing you do when you come in the king's presence is you kneel down and you ask the king, how may I serve you? Bid me your command. If you've got the King James version of the Bible, it actually says, bid me to come to you. This records it, command me to come to you. This command word is really significant because Peter sees Jesus as king over every circumstance. He knows he's in the presence of the king and he knows Jesus has the power to change his circumstance. This is really significant for New Hope and where we're at in this moment in time. Peter will not presume upon God without express direction from God. God, I know that you can do this, but I need you to show me that you want me to do this. His request is an act of faith. Since we stood up here as a leadership team 17, 15 months ago, whatever that was, and explained the building project to the entire church throughout the course of all the services... We said, very specifically, we do not want to get ahead of God. We do not want to presume upon him. So, God, we need you to give us green light. Show us along the way that we're doing the right thing. We don't want to presume upon your kingdom or upon the work of your church. So you need to confirm for us. And what has he done, church? Green light after green light after green light after green light. God confirming over and over and over again. Command, command, command. Peter is commanded here. So we don't ever want to get ahead of God. We don't want to presume upon him. We wait upon the Lord and watch Jesus' response to Peter, verse 29. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Now, if Jesus says, come, that command is going to accomplish its intended purpose. Amen? God's word never goes forth from his mouth without accomplishing the purposes for which it has been sent forth. That's what Scripture says. So God is saying to Peter in the boat, Come to me. His purposes are always accomplished. They go forth and they achieve what they were set forth for. Now you and I may stumble along the way. God may call us. We may trip along the way. But God never fails. He always succeeds in everything he sets out to do. So for Peter's part, we understand what's going on here is not about pride. Maybe you've read this before and you're thinking, well, Peter's just being bold. He's just being prideful. He's just trying to step out when the other 11 are left in the boat. He's trying to do something he should never try to do. You know this about God. Jesus would never call us to come into a sinful activity. God would never command us to a prideful activity. God has called Peter out of the boat to take a step on his behalf because God's up to some kingdom work going on here. So we know it's not a pride issue with Peter. Uh, From the safety of the boat, I'm thinking the action probably didn't seem quite as terrifying. When you're in the safety of the boat and you're looking out saying, I want to do that, God called me to come to you, but only if it's your will, command me to come to you. I'm thinking at that moment it probably didn't look quite as terrifying when both your feet are still in the boat But when you get out of the boat, circumstances can seem completely overwhelming, right? When you actually present the plan to the church of a $6 million building project, and you're just a young church, and you're not sure, God, I need you to confirm this. I need you to validate that what we're about to do is really stepping out of the boat on your behalf. And you find yourself only 17 months later with almost $4 million cash in the bank, Does that not feel like God continuing to confirm and confirm and confirm over and over again? I see these principles constantly through this story. But I also find Peter's lack of faith. And there's a danger there for you and I. Go with me to verse 30. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt the word doubt is really significant, especially the way that it's written in the original language. Why did you doubt, Peter? You, you've got this degree of faith that allows you to get out of the boat. You are willing to swing your feet over the edge. You're willing to even set your feet on the water. But you've got this instability going on with you. The Greek language actually records it this way. You of little faith, why did you doubt It says it this way, why are you standing at two roads with two choices, with a diversion in your mind? There's no diversion when God calls you to come, you come. So Peter climbs out of the boat with some degree of measurable faith, but God says, you know, you're ending up with little faith going on here. Hear this, church. Your faith is strengthened When you are taken to extremes you have never before faced, when God takes you absolutely to the edge, Peter's faith is little enough to get him out of the boat, but it is not big enough to carry him when the storm rises and the storm's still blowing. Jesus hasn't stopped the storm yet. He's stepping out of the boat into the storm, leaving the safety of the boat. And God's taken them out in some deeper, deeper water here. And your faith is always strengthened when you're taken to extremes you have never seen before. So for you to mature as a Christ follower, you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, to mature, to really grow, God's going to call you into some deep water. James 1.12 records it this way, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. He who perseveres. And there's extreme trial going on in that midst of perseverance. Here's what I know about God because I've had it happen to me enough times. God allows us to go right to the edge of our little faith. Right out onto the edge of the precipice. Right at the moment where you feel like, I'm just going to fall off the edge When he gets us to that place, when we're completely exhausted of all our ability, when we start to sink, that's when God can do his best work. Because that's where we learn to extend toward God in desperation. God, mature me in this moment. And as we call, God demonstrates once again, over and over and over, he is a faithful God. Amen, New Hope? He's a faithful God. He won't ignore the call. Dr. John MacArthur recorded it this way. He said, as we trust in God and the faith we have, we discover its limitations, but we also discover what it can yet become. Now, for Peter's part, he's fully clothed, right? He's a big guy. He's a professional fisherman, probably had a lot of fishing meals. He's just a large individual, according to Scripture, and he's wearing first-century traditional clothing. So he's got on the inner garment and he's got on the outer cloak of a fisherman's coat and it's a storm, so I'm guessing he's probably been pretty wrapped up. And this guy hits the water and those cotton fibers start absorbing the water and he's looking around at those waves and he begins sinking and in the sudden shock of it, he can think of nothing but drowning. With that cloak wrapping around his ankles, there's no chance of him swimming, even if he can swim and he does instinctively what you and I would do. He reaches out for that one thing that can save him. Now Jesus has been on the mountainside in prayer. Very likely praying for the 12 because he's got his eye on them. He can see them straining at the oars and Jesus has been in prayer. And when it's daytime and it's clear, they can very likely see the mountainside on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, but very likely they wouldn't be able to see Jesus four miles away. But now, it's me. I'm here. Don't be afraid. He's right in the storm with them. What comfort is it to you to know that Jesus is in the storm with you? What what comfort is that to know that Jesus is in the storm? What would it do for you to know that God is praying for you? That's what we're told in Scripture in Hebrews, that Jesus constantly intercedes on your behalf. Not four miles away, but right in the presence of God the Father interceding personally for every single detail he knows is going on in your life. Because he not only knows your need, he knows your fear. And he is in control. Look with me on the screen at Isaiah 43:2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. You know what's really hard about that verse? It's Sunday morning. And we're church people. And we go, yeah, that's, that's good. I should write that down in the back of my Bible. But then comes Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, and somebody trashes us at work, or maybe we get a bad health report, or one of our family members has a fight, and we begin thinking God's not concerned about that. And Satan brings the temptation your way. He doesn't care. Your issue is too small. He's a big, big God. He's a long way away from you. Don't don't bother him with that. It's not important to him. If you keep your focus on those hard things, you will begin to sink, just like Peter. But when you put your attention on the one who came to save you, he will be faithful, church. He will reach out because he's a faithful God. Here's how the story ends. Verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind stopped and those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, you are certainly God's son. I'm not sure what's more spectacular in this story without saying a word, he steps into the boat and it completely goes quiet. Or the fact that they instantly arrive on land or that he walked on water. There's three miracles going on or four if you want to count him seeing them from a distance. No more roaring wind. No more storm. All they can hear is the drip, water falling off the end of the oar, hitting the flat, calm sea. And according to Scripture, it instantly ceased, and they're at shore. John 6.21, immediately the boat was at the land at which they were going. All that's threatening them is gone, it's quiet, and the boat's at its destination. And Mark 6:51 records: And they were utterly astonished. Can I identify with that, right, church? Would you not be? I can identify with that. The Greek language actually records that they are out of their wits. Beyond the place of amazement, they're in this place of awe, which led them, according to what we're reading here, to this place of worship. Here's what I know about where you and I are at right now in New Hope as a church. We're in this exact same place, except it's even more dangerous for us. Because it's taken us 16, 17 months to get to this place, and we can begin looking at situations like this and saying, well, it's, it's just kind of what we do. It's normal. God's. No, this is not normal. This is not a normal setting. We've entered this same place. You're seeing God do things in your lifetime that only God can arrange. These things are not normal. They don't typically happen. And while we have the privilege and the responsibility of partnering with God, that we get to play a role in advancing His kingdom, Being blessed with the things that we've been blessed with and doing what we can do with what's been the proportion that God's given us, make no mistake, it's God who gets the glory for this. It's God who gets the glory for the great things He has done. Truly, He's working through us. But it's a remarkable thing to be a part of. At last, for the part of the disciples in this place, in this moment in time, amazing things that they're seeing, they finally have come to the place where they recognize who Jesus really is, that he's the one who's the name that's been exalted above every name, that he's the one who has come for the salvation of the world. They're coming to this place where they haven't been mature before, but they're maturing in understanding who Jesus really is, that God has called him the one who is above every name that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Would that be true of us, New Hope, that we would talk so magnificently of this great God that all the world that we know would want to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Could it be that he's doing this work among us for that reason, that we would point people to God's glory not to how great we are, but to how great our God is. That's the way I want to pray with you right now. That we would not forget this moment in time, especially as God continues to grow the church. That we would bring praise back to him. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together about that. Father, we've looked at this magnificent story this morning in the way that you've reminded us again. That even though we may have read it a hundred times, you always make it new. And you remind us of things that we've seen before, but we needed to be strengthened in. Father, for our part as a people who have come together this morning and those who are watching online, don't let us be part of a crowd who would forget the great things you have done. Or rather, God, that we would be loud and we'd be willing to trumpet who you are. That one year, three years, five years from now, we would still be faithful to you because you are always faithful to us. And that we would be reaching out to a world who's looking to know you and understand you. So God, continue to use New Hope to strengthen people who are walking in your word and to bring people who are not yet into relationship with you into relationship. Let that be true of us, Father, that we would be true to what you've called us to do. And we'll give you the praise and the honor and glory. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.